0: Welcome to Season 3 of What Really Happened, executive produced by Seven Bucks Productions, Dwayne Johnson, Danny Garcia, and Brian Gowertz, in association with Cadence 13. It's written and hosted by me, Andrew Jenks, and you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram at Andrew Jenks. You can also become a contributor to the show by going to JenksPod.com contributors. With Season 3 coming to an end, Don't forget, we had 16 episodes this season, so now we got about 50 in total, so you can always listen back to previous episodes. Previously on What Really Happened, we looked at what many experts consider the most likely scenario, that Malaysia Airlines Flight 370 was a murder-suicide, that the pilot, Captain Zahari, killed himself and everyone else on board. These experts have made such suggestions in The Atlantic and New York Magazine, and on news channels such as CNN and news programs like Australia's 60 Minutes. The evidence for murder suicide can be boiled down to four points. One, the pilot's marriage was in turmoil. Two, people who have wished to remain anonymous claim that Captain Zahari was depressed, perhaps caused by his marriage and overall loneliness. Three, there had been a flight simulator at Captain Zahari's home, apparently revealing that he had taken an oddly similar flight path to Flight 370's route. Four, one of the few pieces of the plane which has been discovered seems to reveal that the pilot had attempted to land the aircraft, hoping to create less debris and land in an area where it'd be difficult to find the plane. So what do I make of these reasons? In this episode, I go through why each of these four items don't add up, and I come to a different conclusion as to what really happened. First, the flight simulator found at Captain Zahari's home. Talk to anyone who believes in the mass murder-suicide theory, and they will tell you that a main reason they believe this is because Captain Zahari ran a route on his flight simulator similar to the route MH370 took. The route is a strange one to take on a simulator because it doesn't return to land. It just flies out to the southern Indian Ocean. The information that Captain Zahari had this flight simulator and ran a route or routes on the simulator similar to that of MH370 has been all over the news since the summer of 2016. I'll get to all of the outlets who've covered this, but it began with a New York Magazine exclusive. It was written by Jeff Wise. So where did he get this information on the flight simulator from? My name is Florence DeChanger. Florence De Changer has been a journalist for 25 years, reporting for Le Monde and France National Radio, focusing on the Asia-Pacific region. Florence has a book coming out in the spring of 2020 by HarperCollins called the Disappearing Act, the impossible case of MH370. In the summer of 2016, Florence received a confidential report from a source, someone who was part of the investigation or with intimate knowledge of the investigation. In the report, there was a file on Captain Zahari. For investigators to have a file on the captain made perfect sense. He was the captain after all, and investigators had to look into his background.
1: In this folder, there was, on the one hand, an analysis that was saying that there was basically strictly uh, nothing problematic, and that was sourced from the FBI.
0: But then, there was a different file.
1: And then, in a different folder, not the one related to the pilot, there was this infamous uh, graph that showed a very similar route to that Of the official narrative.
0: The official narrative being one in which Captain Zahari ends up flying back towards Malaysia and ultimately south to the southern Indian Ocean. So Florence is now looking at a graph that perhaps shows a path taken by Zahari's simulator, which looks oddly similar to the route of MH370. So
1: I really struggled with that because uh, when you first look at it, it was like, oh wow. This is like some kind of evidence that maybe uh, the pilot had this crazy route in mind before because he would have done it on a simulator.
0: But, and this is crucial, something was off.
1: But then when you looked at it more closely, you understand that this was an apparently completely fabricated route based on different points that came from uh, the hidden data
0: In other words, this wasn't just a simple document showing a route Captain Zahari took on his simulated plane. It was instead different data points his simulated plane had been on. And when put together as if one flight, it looked like the Malaysia Airlines flight. Regardless, Florence had a hunch that something was off about what she was given. And
1: I submitted to several people, including a criminal lawyer who is from Malaysia, and he pointed to me several problems with these two pages. One was that it was not the same English that was used in most of the other reports. In other words, it was coming from a different source to some extent. And second, it was quite clear when you look at it closely that the investigators had been asked, I mean, the people who produced these graphs had basically been asked to find anything in the simulator that would be consistent with the route that they suspected the plane had done. So it's the contrary to what an investigation should be. It's basically asking them to find the evidence to back their favorite thesis. So this to me was really problematic. And basically what this um, Malaysian lawyer was telling me is that his impression, and it's not someone who came out publicly about that, but his impression was that this was planted evidence. And this was there so that when it leaks, and it had already leaked in a way because it was with me, um, it would be a very damning kind of evidence against the pilot.
0: So someone wanted this information leaked information which isn't really evidence. And it gets to Florence. Being a first-rate reporter, she sees the holes in it and starts to realize, although it would make for huge news around the world, instead it perhaps should not be published at all. She does share it with a group of colleagues, four in total. And one of the four goes rogue.
1: Unfortunately, as soon as the document was within the group, we didn't even have time to um, to discuss it. And an American blogger who was also very keen on that story, who was one of the four of us, he decided to go ahead and publish it. And it was completely against our agreement. I've never come across uh, this kind of uh, attitude with journalists I've dealt with in 25 or 30 years of
0: where was it published? New York Magazine. On July 22nd, 2016, they ran the story with an explosive headline, which read, Exclusive. MH370 pilot flew a suicide route on his home simulator, closely matching final flight. It became what many called the smoking gun. What was meant to be information to discuss amongst peers and what Florence believes is a suspicious document at best, quickly became international news. And few in the media, if any, looked at the documents with any real scrutiny. The article said, New York Magazine has obtained a confidential document from the Malaysian police investigation into the disappearance of Malaysia Airlines Flight 370 that shows that the plane's captain, Zahari Ahmed Shah, conducted a simulated flight deep into the remote southern Indian Ocean less than a month before the plane vanished under uncannily similar circumstances. It continued, The revelation, which Malaysia withheld from a lengthy public report on the investigation, is the strongest evidence yet that Sahari made off with the plane in a premeditated act of mass murder-suicide. The media Went wild with this information. The very next day, the Independent in the UK ran a headline which said, "MH370 pilot flew suicide route on a simulator closely matching his final flight." Then there was CNN. The answer, perhaps, to the longest, uh, to the long-standing
2: mystery of what happened to Malaysia Airlines Flight 370. We were just getting this in. It centers on the 777's captain and the flight simulation program he ran as a hobby. According to New York Magazine's Jeff
0: Wise, uh, an FBI forensic examination shows that the captain used the program, Microsoft Flight Simulator X, to fly essentially a suicide route. This forced Malaysia's transportation minister to acknowledge such a flight route on the simulator did exist, but he also said it was important for people to not draw any conclusions from this. There were endless flight routes taken on the simulator. But it was too late. The New York Times ran a headline which said, Pilot of vanished Malaysian flight had deviant route on his simulator, minister says. They forgot to include in the headline the part where the minister also said not to draw conclusions. Said Florence de Change.
1: To it's, me, it's an appalling act of, uh, it's not called journalism, but whatever. This has contributed significantly to uh, accusing the pilot, whereas, in my opinion, there are very few um, real uh, indications or evidence uh, that allow uh, um, people to believe that uh, the, the captain was, uh, was guilty in any way. So I, I regretted this very much. I did not come out publicly at the time to denounce it. Uh, And sadly, a lot of media have picked up on that story, uh, not even checking. If you look at the story, it's actually, the document is not named, it's not even dated, and the source of the document is not given. Why? Because I only shared a few pages, um, and at the time, the person uh, did not even have time to ask me what exactly does it where the, where exactly does it come from, and things like that so it's a very poor yeah it's a, it's a poor act of journalism, uh, but it has done terrible damages to the reputation of uh, the captain and obviously to his family.
0: Florence de Changer is the one who uncovered these documents documents that people have used to say Captain Zahari is guilty of mass murder suicide. But now we know the truth. That very person Florence who got a hold of these documents doesn't find them to be credible. I also spoke about this with Christine Negroni. She's an aviation safety specialist and for years was an air accident investigator. She is also the author of the best-selling book The Crash Detectives.
2: Captain Shaw loved to fly the simulator, and that some of them happened to go into the South Indian Ocean is not at all surprising, considering that he lives near the South Indian Ocean. That's like, if I'm going to take an airplane out in a simulator, I'm going to fly over the Atlantic. That's my hood. Well, this was his hood. And so, you know, you can slice and dice things and make it look suspicious, but if you look at the whole picture, I'd say it does not look nearly as suspicious as some of these articles make it appear.
0: Number two, now you may remember that there were reports of marital issues with Captain Zahari and his wife, said Christine Negroni. The captain,
2: I know there have been a lot of tabloid reports about how uh, he was about to divorce his wife, but if every divorcing pilot was going to commit suicide, we wouldn't have a plane flying right now. That is not an uncommon situation for airline pilots to be divorced or divorcing.
0: Number three, depression. Captain Zahari and his supposed depression has been pointed to as a reason for this being a case of murder-suicide. As I mentioned in part one, in June 2019, a veteran journalist, William Lengawisha, wrote a piece on the crash for The Atlantic. He wrote, there is a strong suspicion among investigators in the aviation and intelligence communities that he was clinically depressed. But, the writer didn't say who these aviation and intelligence investigators were. In the past, pilots who killed themselves and everyone else on a plane showed warning signs. For instance, when Germanwings Flight 9525 crashed and it was determined the plane was intentionally crashed by the pilot, the investigation revealed evidence that the co-pilot had a history of mental health troubles. Doctors had, in fact, treated him for suicidal tendencies. There was questions as to whether he should even continue working. There is nothing like this as it pertains to Captain Zahari. Only speculation.
2: There have been pilots who have committed suicide by airplane.
0: In her book, Christine writes about six cases in which a pilot purposely crashed a plane.
2: But in none of those cases did the pilot's take the airplane on a suicide mission that was seven hours into the future. They didn't do it in a manner in which they were going to live with the consequences of their action for an extended period of time.
0: Remember, Malaysia Airlines Flight 370 took off at 12.42 a.m. A radar picked up that it was still flying at 8.19 a.m. over seven hours later.
2: Even in the case of German wings, which is the most recent, the pilot put the airplane into a dive, and there is an amount of time it's going to take you to hit the ground. So there is that period of time, which as I recall, was something in the area of 10 minutes. So I find it very difficult to imagine that one pilot is going to say, I'm going to kill myself in seven hours. I'm going to I'm going to sail away into oblivion over a long period of time. I find it incomprehensible that two pilots would do that. So, we have to have one pilot killing the other or locking the other out of the cockpit, something like that. But let's say that the pilot did lock one pilot locked the other one out of the cockpit. Then he's got uh, the second pilot has a cabin full of people with cell phones, he's got flight attendants who can communicate with the ground. It's not, you know, they're not isolated there.
0: But there was never any communication from the plane.
2: There's not a cell phone call from the cabin. There's not an emergency call from the, from the flight attendants. There's nothing.
0: And last, what about that flapper We talked about this in part one. The flapperon is a part of the wing. It is one of the few items from the plane which was found. Larry Vance, an air crash investigator, talked a lot about the Flaperon in his interview on 60 Minutes.
2: The wreckage so far recovered
0: from MH370 may be further evidence it was piloted to the end and was not a high-speed impact.
3: Larry, for you,
0: what is the significance of the first pit of debris that washed up off Africa?
3: If this was a high-speed dive, this piece would not exist.
0: Larry Vance
3: believes this recovered flaperon from MH370's right wing, reconstructed for the official ATSB investigation, would have been
0: massively damaged if there'd been a high-speed crash. In other words, as recovered in Part 1, according to Larry Vance, Captain Zahari was still flying the plane when it landed. His reason, there was so much damage to the flaperon that the captain must have deployed it.
2: Well, there's, you know, there's a couple of things about Larry Vance and his television appearances.
0: Here again is Christine Negroni.
2: He was, you know, totally in with the idea that the Flaperon showed signs that it had to be deployed uh, at the time the plane hit the water, based on seeing a picture of it on television from his home in Canada. And here is his actual quote when the flapperon was found, then everyone, in my opinion, should have concluded it was a human engineered event. There's no other explanation. This is what he said when he saw it on TV. And I know he was an investigator, and, I, and I'm not intending to say he wasn't a good investigator. He might have been a great investigator. But I can tell you in my uh, years of working with air crash investigations and doing them myself, you never say, I knew the minute I saw this exactly what had happened 100%. You just don't do that. And especially evidence as attenuated as a television screen. So that's problem number one. But problem number two is, okay, let's just say that in his experience looking at the metallurgy, that the witness marks seemed to show that the flaperons were in the deployed position when they hit the water. That the, his assumption was the only reason the flaperons would have been deployed is because the pilots were trying to do a controlled ditching into the water. Okay, fine. So that's a theory you want to go with and you want to run it to ground. But the fact is, other investigators who were officially assigned to the investigation did that investigation. And the witness marks showed that the flaperon was stowed It was stowed. It wasn't deployed. So at some point, if Larry Vance believed this at the beginning, then he has to say, okay, but now I'm looking, and the investigators are saying it's stowed. If it's stowed, then you can't say the pilots were trying to make a gentle landing on the water. What you can say is the airplane was not configured for landing, and an airplane not configured for landing would lead you to believe that the pilots were not trying to land. So, you know, there's just no, there's no physical evidence of this theory of his.
0: There's another technical reason Christine also believes the flapperon wasn't deployed. But for our intentions here today, I think the case is made that you can't rely on the flapperon as evidence that this was a mass murder suicide. So the main reasons that have been pointed to for this being a mass murder suicide are now gone. I've gone through a lot of scenarios. In part one, investigative reporter Mark Williams-Thomas explained to me why so many theories don't add up. In part two, Christine Negroni and others have helped me understand why it may not be mass murder-suicide, despite that being what so many claim. And given Christine's background, given that she is an aviation safety specialist and for years was an air accident investigator... I began reading her book and other writings she's published on what happened to Flight 370. To understand her point of view, you have to know what hypoxia means. You don't understand hypoxia, this episode's not going to make sense to you. Said Christine,
2: Hypoxia. So here's the 101 on hypoxia. We all need uh, a certain amount of oxygen in the air we breathe. And we not only need the oxygen to be at a certain percent, we need the pressure around us to help push that oxygen into our lungs. So here at ground level, I'm in Connecticut, so I'm barely above sea level. I, you know, I get all that air pressure of, you know, of being, you know, at a low altitude and I have a very easy time breathing. But if I were to go to Denver or Bolivia or something, I would find it much harder to breathe because the air is less dense. And so to get every breath to pull in the oxygen I need, I have to breathe harder to pull it all in. Now, if this happened, people who live in Bolivia or Denver or other high-altitude places, they get accustomed to that, and their lungs are more suited to being in that environment. But for people who fly on airliners, when the airplane takes off, the airplane has to pressurize because all sorts of people might find it difficult to breathe at altitudes. Well, they would be unable to breathe at altitudes that an airliner flies at. So an airplane will pressurize by just basically locking down the the vents and filling up the cabin with more dense air. The altitude in an airplane is between six and 8,000 feet. So the airplane is kind of pumped up like a balloon to the pressure of what you would get at the altitude of Denver. And that's pretty much how people travel in airplanes. If they didn't, if an airplane were to lose pressurization and all of a sudden, instead of being at 6,000 feet, I was at 32,000 feet, all the air in my body would rush out in a very unseemly way because it uses every orifice to escape. And then I wouldn't be able to get oxygen to my brain. That would create Hypoxia. Hypoxia is when you don't get enough oxygen in your brain to sustain its normal activity.
0: You don't die immediately, but what does happen...
2: You start to lose your ability to think clearly, to make decisions, to think rationally. It's like becoming stupid or drunk or dim-witted. Because there's no food to your brain. So it starts shutting down. It starts shutting down the stuff it can do without, like executive function, you know, cognizant thought, to keep the the more important things going, like your heart beating and, you know, the, the stuff that keeps you alive. Thinking isn't isn't as important as keeping your body functioning. So it shuts down the unessential parts and sticks to the keeping you alive parts, which is why if you get hypoxic, you're not going to die right away, but you're not going to have things like good brain function. The curious thing about hypoxia is you don't know that you're getting stupid. You just start thinking that life is grand and everything is great, you get a feeling of of lovely complacency, some people refer to it as a state of bliss, drunkenness. So while if you're hypoxic, what you really need to do is get yourself to a lower altitude and get your brain fed again, you're not smart enough, you're hypoxic, so you're stupid, too stupid to realize you're in trouble. That's the most insidious thing about hypoxia it's very dangerous, but you're too stupid to realize it.
0: How does this happen in the first place? It can be as simple as a pilot forgetting to pressurize the plane.
2: When I talk about these uh, oxygen canisters that, that for some reason blew in in, uh, in the aircraft and in the blowing out of that, it, uh, it it caused a hole in the aircraft and that depressurized. So there's a number of ways. This is not a um, you know, this is it, it, no one's surprised if there's a depressurization of the aircraft. Of course, there shouldn't be, but it does happen because there's a number of mechanisms. Another one I talk about is a case in which, for some reason, I think the uh, windshield was installed on an aircraft after some work was done on it. The windshield was installed with the incorrect length of screw. And after the plane pressurized and depressurized a certain number of times, it ultimately gave way. And in this case, the pilot when the windshield uh, broke, the pilot was sucked halfway out of the aircraft, and, of course, that depressurized the airplane as well.
0: So that's epoxia and how planes can suddenly depressurize. Now, as you know on this show, I like to look for patterns. What has happened in the past that can inform us about a current mystery or help prevent a disaster from happening in the future? Well, Christine told me about two incidents in which people were affected by hypoxia. Case number one. It's 1996. American Transair Flight 406 is a Boeing 727 with 104 passengers. There's a first officer, a captain, and a flight engineer. The flight is going from Chicago, Illinois to St. Petersburg, Florida. At 33,000 feet, there's a sudden and rapid loss of pressure.
2: So there are three men in this case who are working the cockpit, and the depressurization happens, and uh, only one of the three men have been trained in, have been given hypoxia training. That is, they've been in the military, and he was trained, you know, what you do in a case of rapid depressurization. So that guy, I think it was the first officer, he puts on his mask. But the other two start trying to diagnose the problem. And in the process, they pass out. There's also a, a flight attendant on the deck at the, on the flight deck at the time, and she passes out. So the first officer is now recognizing there's there's an emergency. He's turning this airplane around. He's trying to get to the closest airport. He's bringing it down to a lower altitude. And as the plane gets lower and lower, they start to revive the flight attendant, the flight engineer, and the captain start to revive. And you know everything sort of goes well at that point at about eleven thousand feet, but you know, at one point, one of the, the, the flight engineer wakes up and he puts his mask on the flight attendant and then she wakes up and then he passes out. And it's just this comedy routine of, you know, who's conscious and who's not in the flight deck. Meanwhile, the first officer is speaking to air traffic control with the sense that he says, we're going down. He's not even confident he's going to be able to get this airplane on the ground because of, you know, the, the, the drama going on behind him and, you know, some certainly the concern about the rapid decompression. And back in the back, of course, you know, everybody's using their masks and hoping that, uh, that this plane will land safely.
0: The plane did land safely. Afterwards, the National Transportation Safety Board wrote that the captain reported that he was affected by hypoxia. He did not recall what happened in the cockpit between the time he reached for his oxygen mask and when he regained consciousness as the airplane was descending. Unfortunately, other crew and passengers on flights affected by hypoxia have not been so lucky.
2: In the case of Helios Flight 522, the pilots took off from uh, Cyprus, and they were headed to Athens. And in that case, it's it's believed that they failed to pressurize the aircraft, which is not an uncommon procedure on the 737. But in this case, the pilots failed to pressurize the aircraft, and they take off, and they, they're headed on their way up, and they start to get an alarm in the cockpit. And the alarm confuses them because it's a dual-use warning horn The alarm can tell them if they're on the ground, you're not configured properly for takeoff. If you're in the air, it tells you the airplane is not pressurized. So they're in the air, but they get the alarm at about 10,000 feet, and they're already obviously feeling a bit of the effects of hypoxia because they think they have an improper takeoff configuration horn. So they start talking to air traffic, and, uh, to, to back to the controllers, and they're saying, why are we getting an improper takeoff configuration warning horn when we're off the ground? They haven't figured out that it's a pressurization problem, and they never do figure it out, because rather than put on their masks right away, the two of them engage in this conversation with the controllers on the ground and with each other, and then the captain gets up out of his seat, and he goes to the, to the, um, uh, the panel behind his seat, where he passes out and the first officer never gets up out of his seat, but he passes out. They're overcome They're They've gone unconscious from a lock, lack of oxygen, but this airplane, 737, this airplane is still flying on its programmed route to Athens. So up, 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 it goes on its way to cruise altitude. And there's nobody, there's no, there's no sentient person in the cockpit. Back in the back of the airplane, the masks have dropped. We presume that everyone put their masks on and they are, you know, sort of doing their thing, probably concerned about what's happening. But only they're only concerned for about 15 minutes because after that, they're unconscious too.
0: A little known fact, but the masks, which drop when there is problems, only provide oxygen for 15 minutes.
2: But there's one person in the cabin, in the passenger cabin, who's awake for all of this. And that's a flight attendant who, in his spare time, is learning to be a pilot. He's using one of four portable oxygen containers that the flight attendants have for emergencies such as this. He uses the first one. That's 30 minutes. He uses the second one, 30 minutes, on and on. He goes through four of them. So now this airplane has been flying for two hours at altitude with no pressurization, so essentially 30,000-plus feet. At this point, when he's on his last oxygen uh, bottle, he gets himself up to the cockpit. Because you've got to know, he's wondering what the heck is going on. But he doesn't, for some reason, get up there any sooner. Two hours into the flight, he opens the door into the, onto the flight deck, and he looks, and what does he see? The first officer, likely dead, in his seat. The captain, dead, behind his seat. The captain's seat, empty. The glass is fogged, you know, with frost because of the temperature up there, which is 30, 40 degrees below zero. And out of the window of the cockpit, on either side of the airplane, this young boy, a young man, sees two fighter jets, Greek fighter jets, who have been dispatched to find out what the heck this airliner is doing without having radioed into Athens Air Traffic Control, because it's now in Greek airspace. Well, the fighter pilots have figured out what's going on because they see this, this airplane they, they can see it's got frosted windshield and nobody's answering. They know what that means. They know that that means that the airplane lost pressurization and the, the pilots are incapacitated. The flight attendant gets into the captain's seat. He puts on the captain's oxygen mask and he tries to radio for help. He doesn't, you know, he's, he's a general aviation student in general aviation. He doesn't know how to handle it. 737 so he doesn't hit the right button but it's recorded by the cockpit voice recorder and he makes a couple of radio uh, what he thinks are radio calls one of the fighter pilot's motions for him to follow them he is, does not and then the first engine uh, loses loses fuel because it's reached the end of its fuel supply and then the second engine winds down and the airplane crashes into a mountain and that's the end of flight 522
0: So, what does Christine think happened?
2: I don't know what happened to Malaysia 370. But I hadn't been in Malaysia more than a week before I had a pretty good idea that this was a Helios Flight 527 event all over again. It resembles the Helios case in many ways. So, you have a plane on a normal flight everything is normal nobody seems alarmed all of a sudden the pilots start doing something that makes no sense they turn the airplane around they start in one direction then they head in another direction and they head in another direction well clearly somebody's at the flight control somebody's controlling the airplane so why are they making erratic turns? Why are they not communicating? Why does it appear that they're headed back to the airport? There's no logical answer to that, except if you look at a case like Helios, in which, in a situation in which the pilots don't do the things they're supposed to do, And then become incapacitated, and the plane is kind of flying on its own. In the Malaysia 370 case, this plane does turns around. It makes every indication that it's heading back to Kuala Lumpur. Then goes off, then heads north. And when he heads north, I found it very interesting that the airport that they that they're flying towards is the airport where the first officer learned to fly. It's got a very long runway. So if in his mind he had an idea, hey, we're in trouble, let me, you know, let me put this airplane down, and he knows it's a 777, seven has got a lot of fuel in it, and they've just taken off, he's going to want a long runway. And he knows that the Langkawi Airport has a long runway, and he also knows how to land on it, because that's where he learned to fly. So I didn't find that the, that going off to the Langkawi Airport was too far-fetched, except They never made any attempt to lower the airplane. They never went down to a lower altitude. He never made any contact with the Langkawi Airport. After he heads towards Langkawi, then he starts turning west again and then south. And from that point on, there's no indication that anybody did anything on that aircraft. Why? I think that's the point in which he went unconscious. And the airplane flew on until it ran out of fuel. So it's all craziness. It's all crazy activity. And what defines crazy activity by a pilot? Loss of mental acuity. And how does that happen? Depressurization of an airplane. So it looked so much like the Helios case that when I learned that this airplane didn't go down in the South China Sea, but that it flew... For the entire amount of its fuel load. If the pilots had been conscious, they'd have tried to put the airplane down somewhere, but it flew on its own. There were no pilots in charge. That tells me the pilots were incapacitated. Now, there's many ways that pilots can be incapacitated. Somebody could have taken, you know, burst into the cockpit and shot them to death. Um, They could have both eaten the same meal and gotten sick. But what do we know from history is the most likely case? Hypoxia, because we've seen it happen.
0: And to be clear, there are, unfortunately, plenty of examples. Not just the American Transair flight and the Helios flight. It also happened... In the
2: Learjet that killed Payne Stewart. In the general aviation airplane that killed the Glacier family. American uh, real estate developers and other cases. In Australia, in Scotland. There have been other cases and this is what they look like. This is what they look like. Illogical actions followed by flight until fuel exhaustion.
0: I have gone back and forth on what I think happened. At times, I've thought it seemed like a mass murder-suicide, and maybe it was. But based on the facts present, I think it was more likely a case of a pilot affected by hypoxia. Right now, what is perhaps most devastating to the loved ones of those passengers on MH370 is that the Malaysian government has stopped searching said investigative
3: reporter Mark Williams-Thomas, who we spoke to in part one. Often people say to me, you know, just let it go, just let it, let it be. I don't buy into that. And the reason I don't buy into that is that we can never give up the fight for justice. And the fight for justice is one that we as representatives in the media investigators must take on for the families who are either too weak or just don't have a voice. We have to shine a light in the darkest of corners, and that means covering cases, which can be upsetting for people, but we mustn't forget that as a result of MH370's disappearance, many families, hundreds of families are still wanting answers. And if we can continue to ask those questions, that is what we should do.
0: Mark also reminded me of a company that seems to have largely gotten a pass.
3: I don't know why, not just the Malaysian authorities, I don't know why the pressure isn't massively on Boeing. And Boeing themselves have said, we want to find this plane. Why are Boeing not doing that as well? It just seems that these people have been forgotten. And that is terrible.
0: Christine Negroni added,
2: The families may need closure. I'm not going to argue with that. That is not why air crash investigations are handled. And it's not because people need to know so that they can sue. Though lawsuits inevitably follow. There is one universal reason for conducting airplane crashes. We find out what happens in a disaster so that we can learn from it and prevent a similar disaster.
0: Said Daily Beast journalist Clive Irving. The whole reason why flying has become progressively so much safer is that every accident, minor and major, is relentlessly interrogated until its causes are understood, and then rectified. This has become one of the most impressive and vital learning curves in the history of science, complicated by the fact that air disasters are frequently not just about science, they are a complex combination of human and scientific factors. I think the search must continue, for the friends and family who had loved ones on that plane and for air traffic safety around the world. While Malaysia and Australia have currently stopped their searches, now is not the time to give up on understanding what really happened. Thank you for listening to season three of What Really Happened. I want to thank everyone who has worked so hard on the show. I want to thank Dwayne The Rock Johnson, Danny Garcia, Brian Goertz, and Seven Bucks Productions for their support. And of course, of course, I want to thank everyone at Cadence 13, the great Bill Schultz, Joey Engelbrecht, Richard Cook, and the mastermind, Chris Corcoran. A big thank you to Alex Pepper, who has helped me with research. If you've really enjoyed the show and you happen to have a few seconds, rate and reviewing this podcast will actually make a big difference, so I appreciate it. You can also follow me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, at Andrew Jenks. We've done over 50 episodes, so feel free to go back, listen, and enjoy.